brothers and sisters, today we celebrate the Feast of Divine Mercy. In this Jubilee Year of Mercy, it seems quite appropriate that as we end our Easter octave, we do so by celebrating God's divine mercy. This feast, established by Pope St. John Paul the Great, and based largely upon Jesus' request to St. Faustina, leads us into a greater understanding of the significance of our Easter celebration and a greater awareness of our salvation. Before we can truly understand the depths of God's divine mercy, we must examine and acknowledge our sins, which takes us back to Good Friday. On Good Friday, we saw the fullness of human sin on display. Humanity had become so self-engrossed that it not only denied and rejected God, but that it crucified him and left him to die hanging on a cross. Today we see God confront this massive problem, addressing it head-on, so to speak. In the gospel that we just heard, Jesus confronted the problem of sin by seeking out his apostles, the people who had denied him. Upon seeing them, he showed them the marks on his hands and in his side, the relics of human sin. It was as if he were staring them down, making them look at what they had done, making them face the consequences of their sinful behavior. But then, in an unprecedented manner, he showed the depths of God's mercy. For at the same moment that he showed them his scars, he said, peace be with you. And of all the things that Jesus revealed about God, this is probably the most dramatic you know, I may be walking on the fine edge of orthodoxy, but I would argue that this revelation is more dramatic than the incarnation itself. Because, after all, the idea of a god or gods entering into creation had been conceived by other religions and mythologies. The Roman and the Greek gods often entered into human history to manipulate it, albeit in a different way than Jesus. But never before had it pierced the human imagination that God could not only enter into human history, but that he could make himself the victim of human sin and then respond not with vengeance, but with mercy. All the gods humanity had previously conjured up needed to exert their power through violent force. But Christ shows us that the ultimate exercise of power comes not through vengeance, but through mercy. Friends, it's crucial that we understand this point as it's somewhat counterintuitive. You know, so often we tend to view mercy as a sign of weakness rather than as the ultimate display of power. When we think of power, you know, we think of it in terms of violence. We often think of the one who can impose or inflict his will upon others as the person who has power. And consequently for us, power often manifests itself through loud, booming explosions, not in soft, gentle words. On the other hand, mercy is often seen as weakness, a cop-out for those who are too weak to exert any sort of real power. 
You know, sure, we may give it its proper lip service, but it doesn't really command the type of respect and attention demanded by those who can impose their will upon others. Thus, political leaders with vast armies at their disposal tend to be seen as people of power, whereas someone like a Mother Teresa, or perhaps even a Mother Angelica, is seen as sentimentally a nice person, but one whose power is moral, but not real, as she had no means to violently impose her will on anyone. The reality is that the violence is the true sign of powerlessness. I think this was best seen in the life of St. Anthony of the Desert, who brilliantly observed this fact when he was being tormented by the devil. The devil had inflicted all sorts of bodily violence upon Antony, creating earthquakes and attacking him with wild beasts. And it was in the midst of this torment that a revelation came to Anthony. He realized that the devil was powerless to take what he wanted. That is to say, the devil was powerless to steal his soul. And he realized that if the devil actually had power, he would be able to rob Anthony of his soul. But the devil couldn't do it. He couldn't forcibly take Anthony's soul. Despite all this great show of violent force that the devil was using, the devil was ultimately powerless to get what he truly wanted. The only thing the devil could actually do was scare Anthony into thinking that he had power in the hopes that Anthony would just simply acquiesce. So in other words, the violent displays that the devil conjured up really amounted to a little bit more than a child's temper tantrum at a grocery store when his mom tells him he can't have a lollipop. The child can scream and make a big scene, but he's still not getting what he wants. Once more now, reflect back to the Passion, where we see this same theme. Pilate, in speaking with Jesus, claimed that he had the power to have Jesus crucified. Here, Pilate points to the violence as the claim of power. But was handing Jesus over to be crucified an exercise of power for Pilate? It may have seemed that way initially, but if we pay close attention to the scriptures, we see that it was actually a sign of weakness. Pilate wasn't in control. He wanted to release Jesus. But Pilate was powerless. Driven by fear, he was unable to do what he wanted. He was unable to exercise true power by releasing Jesus. He was powerless, and therefore he could not show mercy. On the other hand, Scripture affirms that Jesus has been given all power and authority. And because of this, he has nothing to fear. He doesn't need to exercise his power through violence or to impose his will upon creation. And therefore, he has the power to do what Pilate could not. He has the power to respond to human sin with divine mercy. When Jesus pronounces his judgment upon sin by saying, Peace be with you, while showing the wounds caused by human sin, he's effectively saying, I recognize what you have done, and yet I still love you. In this one simple phrase, Jesus exercises true power. 
By responding with peace as opposed to vengeance, he informs us that his divine love is more powerful than our human sin. Or as he told St. Faustina, there's no misery that could be a match for my mercy. The simple statement, peace be with you, unleashes the full power of the resurrection. It's the same power that's unleashed in the sacrament of reconciliation, where God's ability to forgive outweighs our, for our ability to sin. It's the same power displayed when we receive communion, where God's ability to unite us to his body trumps our ability to separate ourselves from God. Friends, God is always reaching out to us. He's always offering us his divine mercy. And he does so in hopes that we'll respond by embracing him, by entering into a personal relationship with him, by uniting ourselves fully to him. St. Faustina records Christ as saying, let the sinner not be afraid to approach me. The flames of mercy are burning in me, clamoring to be spent. I want to pour them out upon these souls. Christ rose from the dead, not to conquer human sin through acts of violence, but to overwhelm it with his divine mercy. It's now up to us to experience that power, to embrace that mercy. On this Divine Mercy Sunday, the church is replete with opportunities to earn partial and plenary indulgences by simply offering a prayer of divine mercy or by seeking Christ's mercy through the sacrament of penance. Let's not ignore this invitation. Let's not be afraid to approach the Lord. Rather, let us acknowledge our sin, repent, and place our hope in Christ by accepting his divine peace, his divine mercy. Brothers and sisters, peace to you and to all who trust in God's divine mercy.